Thank you, Sun Kun, for reading God's Word and leading us in our service. We must always say as God's people, it's good to meet as God's people. And during a time like this, it's especially good to meet as God's people. Amen? So I want you to turn to your neighbour and say, it's so good to see you. Emphasise the so good. Very good. So encouraged to see you here. Right. And more about that later, because all around you, you keep hearing about NCOV. We want to believe that Jesus is Lord over the NCOV. Amen? So, here we go in God's Word, Genesis chapter 4. We live in a, in a very confusing world with many confusing ideas of God or no God. So here is a quote from a famous person who does not believe in God. There is no need for us as atheists to gather every day, every seven days, obviously referring to Christians, to wallow in our unworthiness before God. We as atheists do not need priests, Anglican Church, Catholic Church, or any hierarchy to police our doctrine. Sacrifices and ceremonies are abhorrent to us as our relics and objects, including the bound book. And obviously the bound book is the Bible. And so here we have one of the greatest thinkers, um, was the greatest thinker of uh, Atis, Christopher Hitchens, author of a book called God is Not Great and How Religion Poisons Everything. The world that we live in is confusing, and especially confusing about whether there is God and which God and whether to believe Him and what's the difference if there is a God and whether we believe Him or not. So once we understand that, friends, we come to the heart of Genesis chapter 4 because it's going to show us two lines of humanity, one, what we call the godly line, and the other, the godless line, and what a difference God makes to their life. So, life with or without God, we plunge in and read. But before we do so, a brief uh, survey of what we've read so far from God's Word. Genesis 1, a way to understand it, is the beginnings of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By Genesis 2, the, the camera narrows down and narrows down to the creation of men and women and their fellowship, their friendship with God in the Garden of Eden, the headquarters of the universe. So the beginnings of men and women. Genesis chapter 3, the beginnings of a rebellion against God by listening to the serpent speak untruths about God and finally leading us to disobedience against God. By Genesis 4, we now have arrived the beginnings of family sin. So, what does that mean? What does that mean? The very current word is the word spread. When you hear the word spread now in the current climate, globally, nationally, and personally, you panic. Genesis 4 is in God's wonderful timing, the spread of sin. <laughs> and that's slightly more frightening than the virus. You know why? I'll tell you why if you pay attention to the end. Okay, so come with me as we read God's Word together. Most of the Bible passages I'll be referring to, so please follow me on your phones. I'll just give you one or two passages, then I'll, you need to follow me on your phones as we look at God's Word together. Is that okay? Yep. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. So two verses, two sentences, and deep insights to the first couple and the first family. 
So the first couple and first family we think of any nation could be your president, could be your prime minister, could be your king. And here's the first couple of the human race, the first family of the human race. The first thing I think we, I want to draw your attention to is that Eve's words, opening words, gives us great insight of God's nature and God's character. And what nature and character of God do we see? We are not dealing with an absentee God that despite the very painful rebellion of Adam and Eve against God's good purposes to bless them, to invite them to the Garden of Eden to rest with Him, despite our rebellion, despite our rebellion, God remains personally involved in their life. So, she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So, first lesson I want to draw to you, that the God that we meet in the Bible, beginning with Genesis 4, does not go missing from your life and my life. He doesn't go missing from the universe, from the world and your life and my life at the first incident of sin, at the first whiff of rebellion. So we call him a God of invincible determination. He had a purpose, a good purpose, when he first created us. He invited us. He loved us. He gave us a mandate to rule the world on his behalf. He gave us the institution of marriage from which we will multiply and fill the earth and rule it on behalf. And that purpose, though derail, is not destroyed. Difference between derail, derail is a temporary detour from God's original purpose, but not destroyed. So we meet a God of invincible love, invincible purpose. He's not an absentee God at the first experience of sin. And three things in these verses. This is where you look with me in the Bibles. Verse 1. Eve's, Eve bears, brings forth a man with the Lord's help. That thing, with the Lord's help, is an indication still of a relationship of faith, a relationship of belief. And any woman who has born a child and a husband who has been in that labour ward, seeing a child come into the world, with, will, through that pain, through that labour pain, say with utter, honest humility, with God's child, I conceive, with God's help, I conceive this child, with God's help, I bore this child. And so it's still a relationship of faith. Secondly, second indication, that we don't, they don't meet an absentee God, their sons, Cain and Abel, still have a relationship with God. How do we know that? Both the sons bring sacrifices to God. And so it's a relationship of worship. It's not just Adam and Eve knew this God and their children didn't. And by verse 4 and following, it's not a one-way relationship that Eve calls upon God and the children bring sacrifices to God. You know, you can be a one-way relationship. You could be so infatuated with somebody, with a girl, with a guy in school, send them notes, send them presents, give your overtures, but there's no response. But notice from verse 4 onwards, God speaks to Cain. It's two-way relationship. It's not unrequited love. It's not unrequited dialogue. So God speaks to him, which tells him that the relationship is ongoing. So this first insight of God, his character, his nature accomplishing his purposes, is seen in his dealing with us as rebels and sinners. Though we sin, God's purpose for us to multiply, fill the earth, Rule as his ambassadors continues. So, with that, a picture of God, then we plunge in to look at the repercussions of sin 
in Adam and Eve's children. The eldest son is Cain, the younger one is Abel. Cain is a farmer, Abel is a shepherd. Cain brings some fruit of the land as an offering to God. Abel brings fat portions of the firstborn. The language there, the original language, almost seemed to indicate that Abel brought the fattest of the firstborn. For many of us who are Chinese here in Singapore, around the world, we like tilkabak, which is that, that uh, meat, pork, uh, pork trotters. Yes, tilkabak. Yes, thanks, Jeff. That's why Jeff, Pastor Jeff is sitting here. He loves that. And the fatter it is, the better it is. So I went to Nagaland to preach um, as part of a mission. And they said, oh, this is the pastor who has brought the team on a mission trip. So must honour the pastor and his team. And so what did they go out to do? Chose the biggest, fattest pig and slaughtered it. I tell you, that's a pig. Huge, humongous. I look out of the window and say, boy, that's a pig. And the fat was so thick. Can you imagine? Some of us who love fat, wow, it's so good for the skin. <laughs> so what is this? What's the lesson with this? Lesson number one. God is the official, first official meat lover. God does not like salads. He will never be a vegan. Surely that's not the lesson, right? As I try to lighten the global mood all around us now. God tells, the, the signal on what's the real problem is, God tells Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So it's not what he offers with his hands, is what God knows of his heart. It's a matter of the heart. You heard this saying many, many times. The matter of the heart is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Cain was not right with God in his heart, firstly, and then does not do what is right with his hands. And the two things are always related. What goes on, the manoeuvrings of your heart and my heart, will soon come out what we do with our hands and our feet and our words and our life. And so God knows this. So this is, it shows that God is serious firstly with the initial sin in our heart. He's serious about that. It's the first of many Bible stories that explains the nature of sin, not the origin of sin. So I've said this to, to us many, many times. The difference in gifts, right? Difference in gifts. Okay. So how many of you seated here and listening to this live stream, and we are live streaming this for the parents who cannot come because we have cancelled our Children's Church, our Mandarin ministry, because they're the vulnerable group. Many of our older folks go to the Mandarin ministry. We've also cancelled our basic because the schools have uh, done so and been more cautious about interaction, etc. As you listen to this on live stream, and as you listen to how many of you have gotten what I call useless gifts? You have received useless gifts before, especially useless Christmas gifts. You know it's a useless Christmas gift because you go to the office, you go to the school, you go to a social setting, everybody's supposed to bring a present, right? Then you give exchange, but you don't know who the gift is going to go to, then you receive a, a gift, then you say, what's this for? I received this gift, but it's useless. That's quite different from, that's quite different from, sometimes I will share with you, I'll pull out from my Bible where I keep lots of the cards and the notes and the letters that members of church might write to me and this particular one, I, I didn't bring it in this Bible, I carry two Bibles, this is the NIV I took today, the ESV, and in there is a note when I was preaching in Bishan last year, and this sister in Christ came up and said, I just wanted to encourage you that, you have, that really has struck me, and today's message was good, 
And um, here it is. And together with the present wrapped up, and I unpacked the, that present, it's sea salt. Have you seen that thing? Sea salt. I've never seen the packet before. It's a lozenges, like a sweet. Then I, I love salt, so I love what she gave me. Then I found out that this is real sea salt, right? And manufactured by Malaysians. Sure, it's real. <laughs> but what touched me was the note that she wrote. That though the sea salt may be, you may say, what's that? I mean, that's barely $5 or $10. It's a gift that she gave thinking about what might encourage me. And because the main instrument for my livelihood, my tan chat thing, is my voice, she thinks that giving me something for my voice is the most loving thing. I consider that a heartfelt gift. Quite obviously, God knew that Cain wasn't bringing a heartfelt gift. And Abel was bringing a heartfelt gift from the heart. And you won't know this, and I won't know this, until you read the New Testament, and the New Testament tells you so. Because the contrast is between Abel and Cain. And so God commands Cain, but he condemns... Uh, God commands Abel, but condemns Cain. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commanded as righteous when God spoke of his offerings. So he brought offerings with his hands, but God was speaking of his heart. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. Which means God and faith in him is never undone by death. God, who is eternal, and faith in eternal God, is never undone by death. Three times in one verse, by faith, by faith, by faith. And we're going to read about Enoch in one or two weeks' time. And that faith will always seek to please God. If you have faith in God, you will please God. If you have faith in God, you will please God. And Enoch is spoken of as walking with God. That's later in chapter 5. So whatever you do not know, that's how the Hebrews writer reflects on this. So, inner maneuverings of the heart will soon come out with outer maneuverings of the hand and the feet. Very important. So I've said again and again here, nothing ever happens overnight. What are you allowing now to brew in your heart as you listen to this? What are you allowing to weigh upon your heart? And you think whatever you weigh upon your heart in your idle moments that you preoccupy with will not find its way out to your life. That is a nonsense. A spiritual lie and a spiritual nonsense. Because whatever you allow to percolate on your heart will soon come out in the works of your hands. So what are you allowing to brew in your heart? Adultery against a spouse? Is that what you're already plotting against your girlfriend or boyfriend, even while you're dating? That you are, that you are playing the, the uh, flirting game? Or the greed of a neighbor? Or envy of a, envy, envy of who? Envy of a sibling? Or simply your pride of life? Beware, friends, whichever one, your flirtation, your contemplation of adultery against your spouse, your greed of a neighbor, your envy of a sibling, your pride of your autonomous life, is not whether it's going to turn up, it's when and how badly. 
Cain's sin is even clearer when we understand the later Israelite background. The later Israelite background, God's people, God's people are supposed to bring, God's people are supposed to bring, we have just finished Chinese New Year here in Singapore. When we visit each other, what are we supposed to bring? Something. If you're a married couple, you always bring ang paos so that the singles get the ang paos. So God's people in the relationship with God was always supposed to bring their best to God. And their best to God, God would tell them, you either bring your firstborn or you bring your first fruits. The firstborn or your first fruits. Because firstborn or first fruits was acknowledgement that our whole life, everything comes from God and everything belongs to God. It's not that God needs to be supplied with food. He is not a dead and dumb idol that we create with our hands and you need to put food there for it to rot before the presence of an idol. It's because God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, deserves the very best. And so when we bring the firstborn and the firstfruits, we are giving God His due, we are giving God His worth. That's vitally important, my friends. So sometimes when you fly airlines, and I think it's Qantas, when you fly Qantas, um, halfway through the flight or towards the end, they'll say, if you have any spare change, in, especially in terms of coins or notes from the country you just visited, right? Can you just drop it in this bag? The air stewards and air stewardess will come and pick it up later because they're going to give it to UNICEF. They're going to give it to World Vision. We mustn't ever think that our offering, financial offering, is you when the coloured bag comes around and says, whatever is my leftover, I open my wallet, I open my purse, I give him the leftover. Don't give out of guilt. Don't give because people are looking. Always give our slide there is prayerful and planned giving pleases the Lord. It's prayerful and it's planned. So as a sideline, since we're talking about giving, right? I do not know how we as Christians give. But what we've been teaching our people the way to give, beginning with marriage, preparation, retreats and classes, where couples start their life together, is when you do up a budget, you do up a budget, you don't fill in everything. Uh, pay car, loan, pay house mortgage, um, scuba diving in the Maldives, uh, mountain climbing and skiing in uh, Hokkaido, then whatever left over, give to church, offering. If you are giving, you have any concept of the worth and the due of God, now in Christ Jesus, you make up your personal budget is give to church, God's workers first. Then you readjust, not three dives at Maldives, maybe one this year. Not three skiing trips to Hokkaido, but two. Just being kind to you. <laughs> Example. These are very important things. What you do with your heart and your money, I have no business telling you in one sense. You do it up, you do it. But God knows if you are leaving Him, giving Him leftover time and leftover money. And leftover money is not... God doesn't run a bankrupt economy up there. He doesn't. He just wants to see the generosity of His church. So important things for us to take note here, even with this. Then the snake portion, read with me, we move on to a tale of not just two brothers, but a tale of two cities. Why two cities? Right. It goes on. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother, Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said to him, What have you done? 
Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Notice the dialogue and the language that is there. The dialogue and language that is there is a very important one. It keeps bringing to Cain's consciousness, to Cain's mind, blood, brother, blood, brother, blood, brother, blood. You did something grievously wrong to your brother. Please take note of that. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. The second part of this narrative throws light. And we now find the similarities and the contrast between Adam and Cain. Similarities. Like Adam, Cain does not own up to his sin. Do you realize that? When God confronted Adam, he said, the woman you put here, and the woman said, the serpent you put here, meaning if you didn't create the serpent, if you didn't create the, the, the woman, I, Adam, would never have sinned. So Adam and Cain don't own up to their sin. Like Adam, Cain gets punished. Adam is cast out of Eden. Cain is cast out to live, to live in north, east of Eden which tells you that the people here and the places here and the happening here are all real-time, real people with the real God. They are not just merely figurative or symbolic. Like Adam, Cain receives God's grace. God clothes Adam and Eve. Now, in Genesis 4, God marks Cain with a mark to protect him. But as you read the account, you realize this is where the similarities with Adam end. For here are the contrasts. And what's the contrast? In each of this, he wants to say that sin has, big word today, sin has spread. Sin has become more entrenched and sinners get more brazen and blatant in their sin against God and sin against neighbor. So I was just speaking to one of our doctors who's at the forefront of this. He says, with this NCOV virus, it's unlike SARS. With SARS, you can tell it very quickly with the spike in temperature in the f with first infection. With the NCOV, the first six, seven days or a week, you're almost symptom-free, except maybe for a sore throat. It's the seven or eight day where it suddenly turns, it spikes, because the virus has gotten to you. It has spread. It is now entrenched. By Genesis 4, you're seeing the spread of sin to the children. And it's now entrenched because Cain has taken the life of his brother Abel. So, contrast. Unlike Adam, Cain, did you notice, does not accept his punishment. Indeed, Cain says, my punishment is too much for me to bear. I've given this illustration many, many times, right? My sister and her husband from Canada, they've got one child, very gifted child. So when he was young, gifted and precocious, go together, right? That means quite easily he will do something wrong. And, and so one year when they came and visited my mother who lived with us, um, the son, I don't know, four or five years old at the time, five, six years old, he was obviously from the pa parents' perspective, mucking up, messing up in, in my home as he visited the grandma. And his mother eyeballed him, he eyeballed his mother, and then he came straight to his mother and asked the mother, which corner? Because <laughs> he done wrong, and the number one way of disciplining him was go stand in the corner, 
and, and think about what you just did wrong. And until you realize what you just did wrong and how wrong it was, you don't come out of the corner. You won't find Cain going to a corner. In fact, he says, why should I go to that corner? My punishment is too much for me to bear. There is no thought of how Cain had wronged his brother. There is no thought of how he murdered his brother. Murdered, premeditated. He took him out to the field, not for a walk, not to watch the stars, but to kill him. There is no thought of how he wronged God, how he blatantly disobeyed God, how he ignored God's lifeline. Cain's problem, when you summarize Cain, can you summarize Cain in a word? He was totally selfish. He was totally self-obsessed. And here is the DNA of sin. You are self-inflecting and self-interpreting of your circumstances. Everything you interpret from yourself as the centre of the universe. And it's expressed in this line, my punishment is too much for me to bear. Unlike Adam and Eve, when Cain and his wife have a child, did you notice? Let me read for you, verse 17. When Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch, Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son. Tell me, what's the difference between 4.17 and 4.1? The difference between when Adam and Eve lay with his wife, and she gave birth to Cain and Abel, and Cain lay with his wife, and she gave birth to a son. There is no mention of God. There is utterly no mention of God. No mention of God, no acknowledgement of God. That is with God's help, I conceived this child and brought this child into this world. No thanksgiving. I call Cain and his wife the original DIY couple. Do it yourself. By our own strength, we conceived this child. By our own strength, we brought this child into this world. And so, finally, unlike Adam, who goes quietly into exile, what do we find Cain going out to do? God's punishment upon Cain was that he'd be a restless wanderer all his life. So what do you find Cain doing from chapter 3, verse 17 onwards? We find Cain settling in one place and building a city, which is totally contrary to God's punishment upon him, that the mental picture you have of Cain is every few days, every few days, he puts down his tent, he picks up his tent, he's on the move. That's God's punishment. So Cain stays put. He builds a city. And the very definition of a city is a permanent dwelling. A permanent dwelling is a total contradiction to wandering. It's the opposite. And I think this begins to send to us a very important signal in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And what's the spiritual lesson? From the first mention of city in the Bible, in Genesis 4, man-made cities are anti-God institutions. American pronunciation, man-made cities are anti-God institutions. Why? Because man-made cities beginning with Cain City are our attempt to lessen if not reverse or undo God's rightful curse upon Cain. This is Cain's brazen, blatant, high-handed attitude to his sin and to God's punishment upon his sin. 
If that is true, my friends, then Cain's first city, mankind's first city, Cain's city and mankind's first city becomes the prototype, the prototype, the prototype, the prototype of, is the first model of Babel that we will read of in Genesis 11. And from Babel will come Babylon. And from Babylon will come Rome. And from Rome will come all man-made cities. The very character of man-made cities is self-taught, is self-designed, is self-ruled by human rules, human rights and wrongs, is self-centered and ultimately is self-glorifying. We made this city, and in Genesis 11, with a tower that reaches to the skies. If that is, if that is true, that is why when you read the Bible with some care, God will soon show His one chosen people, Israel, an alternative city. And the name of that alternative city is Jerusalem. God designed, thought of by God, ruled by the law of God, ruled by the will of God, for the purpose of God's glory. You couldn't get a greater contrast between the two cities beginning with Cain's prototype city of self-made, self-rule, and self-glorifying. So Cain's brazen, blatant, high-handed attitude to sin and punishment reaches its height when we read about his descendant, and his descendant is Lamech. That is where the spread of the tentacles of sin have reached their worst, because Lamech is number seven in Cain's line, if you count down from Adam. And seven is a very instructive number in the Bible. It's a way of saying sin reached its depth, or sin reached its height in the descendant of Cain all the way to Lamech. So what is the description of Lamech? The description of Lamech is he married two women, one named Ada, the other named Zillah. And even in the Hebrew language, is very small wordplay, right? Sounds so similar. So, what's the picture of Lamech? God's blueprint when he made us is one man, one woman. One man, one woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his wife, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now Lamech marries two women. He is the first polygamist. He's the first polygamist. And guess what? As he married two women, he was so repentant. Do you see any repentance? No. That he had done any wrong with God? No. Then we now have a window to his sons. And who are his sons? Ada gave birth, verse 20, to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raised livestock. So Jabal, he is no longer a nomad, right? Just finding food on the go. He learns to breed animals, cattle and sheep, so he's gone up the food chain. He's quite well established. He's a, he's, a, he's a farmer in that sense. Jubal, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the harp and the flute. If uh, Jabal could sell you cattle and sheep, what do you think Jubal could sell you? Jubal is most likely in charge of uh, the Esplanade here in Singapore, the Opera House in, 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 in Sydney. Right? He's in charge of the arts festival. He's right up there in his 
music and his drama and his arts. And the last one, Zilla also had a son. His name was Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze. Here is the one, bronze and iron were cutting-edge technology. So one son who is very good with animals, one son who is very good with artistry, the other son is very good at technology, maybe the biopolis. So if you bump into Lamech right, on the streets and ask Lamech, how are you? How's your wife? Say, good, good. Yep, actually you should ask, how are your two wives? And he'll ask which one, Ada or Zillah? Then you ask about his three sons. He will tell you his all three sons are doing really well. They are the top of the food chain of the careers. Now, isn't that fascinating? That this whole line of Cain, culminating in Lamech, there is no mention of God in their line. And they are all doing really well. This is the delusion the spiritual mirage of the God-forsaken life. You ask Lamech, he will boast of the goodness of not having God in his life. And how do you know that? Because verse 23 tells you that. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. If there was any godliness, the conversation could have gone along those lines, right? Ada and Zillah, listen to God. Wives of Lamech, or wives that God gave me, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, and I'm so sorry. No, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. So, what did the young man do to him? Injured him. Could be that the young man stepped on his toes. But for stepping on his toes, he pulled out the dagger, he stabs him. We call that disproportionate retaliation. All I did was, I nudged you at the MRT station. I just bump into you. Sorry, sorry, I bump into you. And sometimes you bump into people. I, I must say sorry as a man with grey hair. I don't want to pick a fight with a young man. Sorry, sorry, uncle didn't see you. Uncle, sorry. I bump into you. You pull out the dagger. You take my life. And so Lamech should be very sorrowful for that. No. He says, if Cain, my, four, my ancestor, is avenged seven times, then Lamech, is avenged 70 times 7. So what on earth would be a one summary word of Lamech? Totally godless, but showing no repercussions, no negative effects for forgetting God in his life, in his marriage with his children. And I think that's a lesson that Genesis 4 wants to pound home to us. What's the difference? This man and his children have no God in their life and they don't seem to be any worse off. It's what we call, as you look at Cain's line culminating in Lamech, the march of material progress is matched by the march of spiritual and moral regression. Sure, humanly speaking, it's all shining and it's all towers. It's city building at its best. Humanly speaking, if you look horizontally at Cain and his line, they are doing really well without God. But the spiritual moral decay is seen in this. He's a polygamist. He sees no wrong in this. They've got three sons. They have no God in their life, and they're all boasting about how good it is. And Lamech, he's a self-made man, self-righteous man. 
You so much as touch me, I'll kill you. You so much as touch me, I'll kill you. And there, are no, there is no thought that God could be his judge. So by the time you arrive at verse 24, what picture do you have of a human race if Cain's line was the only line of humanity? It's a dark picture, my friends. Terribly dark. And there is no hope until verse 25. And why is there hope in verse 25? Come with me and look. Adam lay with his wife again. This is the third time it says it in chapter 4. Adam lays with his wife. Cain lay with his wife. And now Adam lay with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. And what does Eve say? God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Did you notice that God went missing from verse 3 onwards? From verse, uh, sorry, from verse 13 onwards. And God has gone missing for generations in Cain's line. And God only comes back to the picture by the time Eve and Adam are blessed with Seth. If you trace the storyline, if you trace the family tree of Jesus, in Luke's Gospel, it will trace Jesus was the son of, the son of, firstly, he was the son of Joseph, the son of, 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 and finally, he's the son of Seth. He's the son of Adam. He's the son of God. Which means that God's gift of Seth to Adam and Eve was the first reversal of the godlessness of men. Already promised in chapter 3, when God promised the serpent crusher. And the next passage that tells us this is a very important passage that highlights Cain to us. 1 John chapter 3. Do not be like Cain. Do not be like Cain. Do not be like Cain. Why? Because Cain, in chapter 4, there is no mention of the serpent, no mention of Satan. But he obviously, from the New Testament writer, John the Apostle, belong to the evil one and because he belonged to the evil one he murdered his brother and why did he murder his brother because his own actions were evil but his brothers were righteous so there are two types of men two types of humanity one the righteous the other the evil then you go on anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. Now see how it's elevated. Who taught us this? Anyone who hates, hatred is tantamount to murder. Who was the original teacher of this? Jesus. For Jesus taught, in a, recorded for us in the Sermon on the Mount, if you come and worship God, but you got hatred in your heart against your brother, then you settle your hatred towards your brother then you come and worship God. Because hatred towards your brother in Jesus' kingdom is tantamount to murder. Now John the Apostle picks this up. The seriousness of anger in our hearts towards our neighbours. So you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Then we fast forward. This is how we know what love is. So who is the contrast to Cain? Who will be the panacea and will be the silver bullet to undo Cain and his sin and his selfishness? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. 
for, for Cain and his line, he's a killer. But Jesus is the life giver. If you follow this line, you belong to a whole humanity of men who keeps taking from people, who keeps sucking from people, who keeps tripping up neighbors. But if you belong to Christ, you are a different being and you ask now, how do I love and serve my neighbor? One takes the other gifts. One takes the other gift. Every time you gossip against your neighbor, you know you're taking life from the person. Every time you are malicious towards a, your neighbor, you know you're taking life. Every time you swan somebody in real time or in virtual time, you are taking life from that person. Christ laid down his life for us. And so we need to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We will encounter this some more as we preach. So what's the difference? Whether I have God in my life, in my generations, in my children, I hope you can conclude, we can conclude as we come to the end. It's a whole world of difference. It took the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to undo the work of Cain. And so we need to ask ourselves, which line of humanity do you want to belong to? Do you want to be part of a world where like Cain and his line culminating with Lamech, we live with deliberate forgetfulness of God. And what kind of world does Cain and Lamech build? It's a man-made city, a man-made world. It's a hyped out and hopeless world where we cover up God's anger against our human, God's anger with our human march of progress. It's a hyped up and hopeless world of city building, of alternative marriages. Who says it's only one man, one woman? Here's the first alternative marriage. Who said it's wrong to be self-centered and self-sufficient? And so all our city building, all our glass towers, dull us to the fact that from Genesis 3 onwards, we live in sin, and if we live in sin, if we live in sin, you're going to age, you're going to get viruses, you're going to get bacteria, you're going to die, you're going to die. So have you ever been to any place, any city in the world that doesn't have a hospital? Have you been to any city of the world that doesn't have a graveyard or cemetery or crematorium? No matter how beautiful and glittering our man-made cities, ever so often, God will shock us out of that city and say, nope, this is your God-forsaken lie. You're never going to undo the curse I put upon the ground. Never going to undo it. So if that is true, then we live in a hyped-up world. You know what hype is? Hype is, this is a glorified lie. This is a dress-up lie. This is a lie in neon lights. And Satan being the ultimate liar gets us to live life dressed up. Ever so often, we will get the SARS and the NCOV. And it will happen more often, you know why? Simply because of travel on the human level. But ever so often, in God's sovereignty, He will allow this to give us a global wake-up call that you are living life outside His presence and against His purposes. That you are living life 
outside the Garden of Eden. And no matter how beautiful your city building is, you are going to get infected, you and I are going to get sick, and you and I are going to die. If that is God's, that is God, God, how God ordains tragedies into the world, man-made disasters and natural disasters, then maybe as we go through disasters, our first and main prayer shouldn't be simplistically, Lord, bring this to a quick ending. Bring this to a speedy ending. Yes, we will pray that. But maybe because of God's sovereignty to wake us up from our man-made cities that cover up sin, we should pray before a holy God. God, please let this run is divine cause so that you bring men and women to repentance. Wake us up from our pride. Wake us up from our self-sufficiency. Wake us up from our man-made cities and our God-forgetting lives. Maybe that should be the prayer of true believers and Christians. I accept this, whether it happens to us personally or happens to us collectively. Let it run its full course until I awaken to true faith and true repentance and true salvation that I cannot make a city and a life without you. Maybe we should tweak our prayers along those lines. So have you looked in the mirror lately? I don't mean the physical mirror. Have you looked in the spiritual, moral mirror lately and check your spirituality and check your, your morality? Do you recognize what's happening to your heart? Do you recognize what's happening to your relationships? Do you recognize what's happening to your work? Do you recognize as sometimes we live so long without the presence of God and without the Word of God, we no longer are conscious that we need God and we miss God. What do I call this in ending? I call this the slow but subtle substitution of God. And somewhere in our business of life around the world, in Asia and in Singapore, you and me will tell God, if not with actual words, with your, with your heart, you know I have to secure my job and build my career. You know I've just newly married, I have to build up my marriage. You know you are a luxury I cannot afford at this moment. By that we mean, what do we mean? That you and me can go a whole week without praying to God and you feel no worse off without prayer. You can go a whole week without reading God's Word and you feel no worse off for not reading God's Word and hearing His voice. You and I can miss communion with God and feel no worse off. Then move on, now that we are hitting this, you and me can miss Christian fellowship and don't miss each other at all. So I do not know how long this is going to go on for. But as this end cove carries on, it will get worse before it gets better. As we learn from history, it will get worse before it gets better. So we had to make a very tough decision as pastors and the leaders of ARPC, what we do with our services. So by Friday night, we had to decide, right, 
bite the bullet as the senior pastor, we cancel the children's church. We cancel children's church because they are vulnerable. We cancel our Mandarin ministry because most of the folk going there are older in the 60s and 70s, if not 80s. We cancel also basic because the schools have done that. It's not a small decision to make because ARPC has six to 700 children coming to our five services. On paper, we have, plus the newborns, about 900 children to 1,000 children. So it's not a small thing. When we cancel and six, seven hundred children don't come, it will mean four to five hundred adults cannot come to services. So yesterday at 5 p.m. service on Saturday, right, I went back after the service. <laughs> and you know, on the second floor where our Sunday school classes are held, the children's church classes are held, it was totally empty. It was totally silent. On an average week, on a Saturday and a Sunday, it's bustling with life. Right? Lots of crying at the start of it because parents are dropping the children and the children say, don't want to go, don't want to go. <laughs> and the transaction takes place. And guess what? I stood at that corridor. I'm not kidding you. I stood at the corridor and I missed that. I miss all the kids. Hebrews 10, verse 24, 25. Let us not give up meeting as some have gotten used to, right? So if we do cancel things and we are prevented from physical fellowship, we are going to try our best as we are doing this morning with this live stream that we put together last minute and that's how we work behind the scenes as your leaders. So pray for us. The decision-making is not easy, the efforts are not easy, but we are trying to be faithful to God and trying to love you. No one, no one person will be happy with every decision we make. And so we call the shots. Some people say the school hasn't uh, called the shots yet to close schools. Why do you close Sunday school? So you wake up this morning or you slept last night or you wake up this morning and they found the next cluster is a church cluster. So we thank God that God gave us the wisdom to cancel it. So I'm pleading for your understanding of how this unfolds that we will march forth with faith in God. Amen? And that faith in God means love for neighbours. And love for neighbour is being pl plotted out from the most vulnerable to the routine of life. Yet, as the Prime Minister warned us, above all people, right? People are panicking out there. I haven't gone to the supermarket yet. But I'm told no more noodles. And no more toilet paper. And somebody told me after the service, some people are selling noodles online for $150. A whole box. So I said... Well, soon I hope the government will lay down a rule. Rumour mongering is illegal, it's a crime. Fake news is a crime, right? And secondly, profiteering during a time of crisis is a crime. It should be a crime. We are not in Doscon Red yet. I hate to think when we go to Doscon Red, we are not at war yet. We are at war with a virus. And this unlovingness all around us is, my goodness, you shouldn't say in the RPC, wow, I tell you this about our sinful nature week after week after week. So much so, you're so tired. Oh, sure got sin one, sure got sin one. Sure got sin one. You won't know sin until it hits you. How selfish you can get. How fearful you can get. It is a nonsense when you share with people, say, what, what, God, 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 no God, got eternal life, no eternal life. I don't care. You don't care? Then why are the, why are the shelves empty? I'm not afraid of death. Rubbish. 
You're a liar. You're not afraid of death, you're just afraid of the virus. This is a time in which God's people stand up and say, because Jesus is risen from the dead, as far as we can, we meet. So you're the brave people of God. Amen? Will I see you here next week? <laughs> just checking, just checking. <laughs> Will I see you here next week? If things improve, we'll see each other. Sunday school might, might restart. If things get worse and we're prevented from doing so, we will try to live stream things for you. And to keep the normality. Meaning, if you come regularly to 11.30, we'll live stream 11.30 as if you were coming to a service so that the normalcy of your life carries on for yourself. Don't get, please don't switch into this role. Oh, so good, a holiday from church. Soon you'll normalize that and soon you will end up like Cain and Lamech where they are missing God from their life, missing God's word, but they don't seem to be any worse off for it. I pray that when life resumes its normality, we come back more faithful, more worshipful, more prayerful, more humble, and more in love with the Lord Jesus. Amen? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Has the virus gone around? Let me try. When we come back and bounce back from this, we'll be more loving, more worshipful, more prayerful, more humble, and more committed to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Amen? Amen. And on that cherry note, we stand and pray and sing together. What a difference Jesus makes to us. We thank you for your word. Recording for us, revealing to us the sad spread of sin, which has a 100% mortality rate. And here we are listening to it and being warned that how Cain felt in his heart and what he did with his hands and how it played out in his family line should send the shivers into our heart that as much as he lived with no recognition of you in any shape and form from the birth of his children to his descendants yet there was no recognition that they were at spiritual loss and so we bow before you and pray to learn that lesson and thank you that you are God of invincible unchanging love and purposes and how you gave to Adam and Eve Seth, and from Seth has finally come in your saving purposes, the Lord Jesus Christ. The counterweight and the counterpart to Cain, who in his selfishness took the life of his brother. And so we look and choose to belong to Jesus, who gave his life for us. And we pray that through this crisis that we are facing globally, nationally, personally, that you are calling out to us a spiritual wake-up call to no longer believe in the hyped-up world of our man-made cities, but to believe in your offer of the new Jerusalem where there will be no more tear, no more sin, no more death. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. <laughs>